Each week, we open the Bible and together. And today, Pastor Shane will continue our fourth week in the book of John, chapter 2. So please open your Bibles or your apps as our good friend Vicki comes up and reads our scripture today. This is from John chapter 2, 1 through 12. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some of, some of the water out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and, he, and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. It's good to see all you guys this morning. My name's Shane. For any of you who I haven't had a chance to meet just yet, I'm one of the pastors as well. And uh, as Doug mentioned, we are going to be getting into our fourth week, our fourth installment in our still newish series in the Gospel of John. And I've entitled the sermon, The First Sign. This really marks the beginning as we hit chapter two. This marks the beginning of kind of a subsection of the book of John that's sometimes referred to as the book of signs. And we're going to start out, before we get into chapter 2, though, talking for a minute about um, where we've been over the last few weeks uh, that's leading up to this, our prologue, our chapter 1 that we've been talking about for the last several weeks. Uh, But before we do any of that, let me pray for us, and then uh, we'll get going from there. Lord God, uh, thank you for your grace to each one of us in bringing us together this morning. I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would instruct not just our minds today, but also our hearts that you'd give us understanding of the scriptures, and that you would use the words you inspired your servant John to write down to cause each one of us to grow deeper in relationship with you. I pray also that you'd guide and protect me this morning uh, as I teach your word to your people, and that you'd guide all of us as we look to apply your word to our lives so that your name might be made great and that we might have the joy of living as your disciples. And we pray all of this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. So, Today, we'll be moving into chapter 2 of John's Gospel, but again, not before taking stock of where we've been so far. And I think in week one of our series, Pastor Aaron shared a little bit about the background of the book of John. I thought I'd remind us of a few of those details uh, before we get going in chapter 2 as well. Uh, The Apostle John, who's the writer of the Gospel, was a Palestinian Jewish man by birth, and he was one of Jesus' earliest disciples. Uh, John probably wrote his Gospel account later in his life while living in Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey. Uh, For his audience, he's writing initially to a mixed crowd there in the cultural center that Ephesus was, a mixed crowd of Christians and Gentiles and Jewish peoples. 
And from a dating perspective, he's probably writing his gospel account sometime after, maybe 20 years or so after the last of the other gospel accounts was written. So probably sometime around 85 AD or so. As to why John wrote his gospel, we've mentioned that over the last few weeks as well. And we saw that John makes his purpose in writing known directly near the end of the book in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. It was up on the screen during, uh, during our, our, our worship time this morning as well. And this is where John says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John wrote in order to convince the readers and hearers of his gospel account, including us, that Jesus is the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah and Savior, so that they and we wouldn't die in our sins, but instead would have new life, eternal life, because of our belief in Jesus. That's John's thesis statement for his whole book, to make Jesus known, to make Jesus' divinity known that we might believe. But over the last few weeks, as we've studied this prologue chapter, just chapter one alone, we've seen this thesis already pretty clearly presented, haven't we? In chapter one, which sets the stage for the rest of John's gospel, we see it right out of the gate. In verse one, John calls him the the word, meaning God's self-disclosure of himself, language that echoes back to the creation account of Genesis one, where God's word speaks all things into existence. John says next in these first few verses that Jesus was not only with God at the beginning as the world was created, but that he was and is God. Then in verses 9 and 10, Jesus is called the true light. And again, John tells us that the world was made through this true light, another uh, divinity claim. In verse 29, then John the Baptist sees Jesus coming and says of Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Apostle John here in verse 29, making two more claims about who Jesus is. First, that he is the Lamb of God. And this is a divine title that we see in the book of Revelation that's given to this conquering Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Let's even look at that verse really quick. It's from Revelation 17, 14, where it says, They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. So that's the first uh, divinity claim there in verse 29. The second one is that Jesus takes away the sins of the world, which many of us know that this is something the Bible makes really, really clear, that this is a role and function only existing in God's jurisdiction, right? And John's purpose in revealing Jesus' true identity, revealing his divinity in chapter 1, just keeps going and going and going. In verse 33, Jesus is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Again, something only God can do. In verse 41, one of his first disciples calls him the Messiah, the Christ, a divine title. In verse 49, another one of Jesus' first disciples calls him the Son of God and King of Israel. Two more titles that would have echoed in the ears of those who heard them of messianic fulfillment of these writings in the Psalms and in the prophets. And then as chapter 1 ends, it ends with John recording Jesus calling himself the Son of Man, which is... uh, a title that John's readers and hearers would have understood as a reference to Daniel 7, where one like a son of man is given rule and authority over all of God's creation. It's quite a resume, right? Quite a resume that John has written here for Jesus just in the first chapter alone. And the Apostle John is making it extra clear. He wants there to be no doubt of his purpose in writing. 
that he's written these things down so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is God, and that in believing we would be led into new life, eternal life in his name. As we reflect on all that, as we look through that list, as I reflected on that this week in preparing for today, as we look at John's stated purpose in chapter 20 for his writing, what keeps coming to mind for me is that statements and claims like these are the kind that demand a response, aren't they? They're the kind that demand a response. It's, it's hard to be in the middle about some of the claims that John makes about Jesus, right? In fact, I'd venture to guess that each one of you was already in your mind evaluating and affirming and making some kind of a decision about John's claims about Jesus even as we were working through that list, right? We just do it naturally. I'll tell you a story. Um, it was in 1995, right around this time of year. I was living in Dallas at the time. I was 24 years old and not a Christian. And one October night, uh, I was meeting up with a friend of mine that I'd been playing soccer with. We were meeting up out at the bar, and um, he got there late, and I was starting to get frustrated, and he finally gets there, and, and so I'm like, where have you been? Like, why would you be late to coming to the bar, right? And he says, oh, well, yeah, I'm sorry. You know, my, my boss had invited me into this Bible study, this BSF thing, and I'd, I've just gotten started in that. He's like, hey, there's a visitor's night for it coming up if you'd ever want to come. Now, if you knew me at the time, you would know that there was nothing in my life at that time that would have indicated that I would have wanted to go to a Bible study. But in God's sovereignty and timing, I said yes. And what I heard when I showed up to that first visitor's night was the beginning of the Gospel of John. Uh, They had just started the study for the year, and this was the book that they were going to be studying that whole year. And I can still remember sitting there. And for the first time, hearing these same statements and claims that we've just been walking through over the last couple weeks and again this morning. And I was compelled. I was compelled as I began to hear these stories that I'd never heard before about the world and how it worked, about God and about this one called Jesus. And these were stories that made sense of my life like I'd never heard before. So I kept coming back, and a few weeks later, we reached this part in John chapter 3 that talks about how darkness hates the light, and how those in darkness who are ruled by sin don't want to come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. And in that moment, this picture just snapped into place for me, and I realized the reason I'd always pushed those away who had tried to talk to me about Christianity and about the Bible and about Jesus was because somewhere deep down, I knew that to take one step in that direction— would be me walking into this exposing light of Jesus. And the sinfulness in my heart wanted nothing to do with that light, I can promise you. And as I realized that all this for the first time, I knew I had a decision to make. John's words and claims about Jesus demanded a response from me. And just as quickly as I realized that, I realized that it had already been done. There was no other decision I could have made. God had shown me through the words of the Apostle John that I was a sinner who needed a Savior. That Jesus was that Savior and that I now had forgiveness for my sins and new life, eternal life in him. The Gospel of John holds a special place in my heart because it was through John's words and claims about Jesus that God saved me. And that's why John said he wrote, isn't it? So that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that in believing we might have new and eternal life in his name. The Gospel of John holds a special place in my heart because John's purpose in writing was realized in my life some 22 years ago. And as we move into chapter 2 now, as we become witnesses to the first of seven great signs that 
that the Apostle John has recorded for us. These words again, these deeds again, these signs are going to demand a response from each one of us. We'll each need to decide what we believe about these signs that John wrote down in order to accomplish in others what they accomplished in me those years ago. And what we're going to see, in fact, is as we dig into chapter 2, is that Jesus' works always point his people toward belief, towards obedience, and towards eternity in him. I'll say that again. Jesus' works always point his people toward belief, obedience, and eternity with him. That's our big idea for today. That's where we're going. So let's see where that shows up for us now as we tackle the beginning of chapter 2 together, picking up in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So already we've got questions right at the beginning. What is this third day that he mentions? What's that referring to? Well, there's lots of speculation uh, on this, but what I believe to be happening here is that John is saying that what he's about to describe here in chapter 2, the events that he's about to talk about, have just happened three days after what had just happened at the end of chapter 1. Okay? So, more specifically, John's referring back to what Jesus said to Nathanael in verse 50 and 51 of chapter 1, where he says to his new disciple, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? Nathanael, you will see greater things than these. And so, what John is doing for us here is connecting the dots and saying, in essence, you know those greater things that Jesus told Nathanael he was going to be seeing? Well, today's the day. And we're told that there's a wedding ceremony happening on this day, this third day. And that it was happening in the small and modest town of Cana, which is in the province of Galilee. John next uh, tells, tells us that the mother of Jesus was there and that Jesus and his disciples were invited. And while that difference is subtle, this probably means Mary was already there when Jesus arrived. And that she was probably uh, performing some kind of serving role. Maybe in the bridal party, maybe as some other kind of servant, but either way, she had some kind of responsibility for the care of the guests during the wedding feast. And this was in a day when weddings would potentially go on. These feasts would go on five, seven days, or sometimes even longer. So it would have been common for you to have a team of people that were involved in meeting the needs of the guests, because this was going to go on for so long. Then later in the night, probably, uh, we see Mary approach Jesus, perhaps a bit panicked, telling him that the wine for these feasts has run out. Now, John Calvin, in his commentary on the passage, suggests this wine miscalculation that has happened uh, might have happened because the people in Cana, a poorer town, would not have been accustomed to the daily use of wine or how to plan well for such a lengthy set of feasts. But regardless of the reason, running out of wine toward the beginning of a multi-day wedding feast would have been a really big deal. Again, clearly Mary had some responsibility in the wedding preparations, so this is potentially a significant embarrassment to her and to her family, especially in the shame culture that they were all a part of in this day. So this is a pivotal moment, isn't it? The wine is gone. And don't you wonder what Mary must have been thinking as she shared this news with Jesus? What kind of response do you think Mary was looking for as she told him what was going on? Is she stressed out? She's just venting to him? She's not really expecting a response? Or is this Mary, the widow, looking to her oldest son as the man of the house now for some kind of human help in acquiring more wine? 
Or is she asking him something else? Is she asking him to tap into his divinity, which has just been so not so subtly revealed in the events of chapter 1, right? Maybe Jesus' response will help us answer this question. Let's pick it up again in verse 4. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His response is sharp, right? It's sharp. It's unexpected. It even feels like it's a little bit disrespectful, right? Why would he respond to his mother like this? Why would he call her uh, woman instead of mother and then rebuke her still even further? It's really hard for us to understand. But while it's not immediately obvious to us at first reading, there is an answer here that can be drawn out of what we know from the other gospel accounts and out of what we know from chapter 1 that we just reviewed. So for the past 30 years or so at this point, uh, as best we can glean from Scripture, Jesus' divine nature has been relatively obscured from view. His humanity has really been the thing that has taken center stage. But if we think carefully about what we've just reviewed in chapter 1, we can see that there's this seismic shift that's underway. What's the shift, Sound City? Any ideas? What's the shift? You can talk in church. It's okay. His uh, Okay, yeah, that's coming. Uh, His public ministry, right, which is associated with that. His public ministry has started now. Just a few verses ago in chapter 1, Jesus had shown up on the scene with John the Baptist who identifies him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In the other gospel accounts, we see John the Baptizer baptize Jesus with the Trinitarian persons in full attendance. God the Father speaks from the heavens declaring Jesus to be his Son. And this, just as the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus and rests on him like a dove, and with this, Jesus' public ministry is inaugurated. That's our seismic shift. Then soon afterwards, Jesus calls his first disciples and they respond with awe and wonder. This is at the end of chapter 1 as they begin to see him now for who he really is. Messiah, Christ, Lord, the one true God. So this is the backdrop of this wedding scene in Cana when Jesus responds with this rebuke to his mother. This is the seismic shift. It's the movement of Jesus' divinity onto center stage. And once we realize that this is what's happening, the whole story begins to make a lot more sense. So again, why is Jesus responding to his mother this way? Because as one scholar put it, this was God's timing for the common earthly relation to be swallowed up in the divine. This was God's timing for the common earthly relation to be swallowed up in the divine. And here in verse 4, we're standing on this inflection point in Jesus' life where his ministry and divinity are being brought into plain view. And for the servants, for the disciples that came with him, for all those nearby in earshot of this conversation, and even for his mother, they all now need to understand that as his divinity comes into view, his relationships with even those closest to him must change. One scholar said it like this, Jesus, by rebuking his mother, however courteously, declares here at the beginning of his ministry his utter freedom from any kind of human advice, agenda, or manipulation. He has embarked on his ministry, the purpose of his coming. His only lodestar is his heavenly Father's will. Therefore, everything, even family ties, had to be subordinated to his divine mission. She could no longer view him as other mothers viewed their sons. So it's for this reason. With pain in his heart, I would suspect that Jesus is distancing himself from his mother, calling her woman, and then continuing, saying, what does this have to do with me? 
or ti imoi kaisoi, the Greek translation of a Jewish idiom, which means literally, what to you and to me? And this Jewish idiom, this question, it's a rhetorical expression here, which means something like, what's common between you and me regarding the matter at hand, with nothing being the expected answer? So with these words, Jesus continues to distance himself from his mother, saying to her, in essence, there is nothing in common between your perspective on your wine shortage problem and the reason that I'm actually going to fix it. Mary's desire in this had been that the wedding would go on without embarrassment or shame for her and her family, that she'd be a good host and that the wedding guests wouldn't be inconvenienced by the lack of wine. And while those aren't sinful desires necessarily, Jesus is saying, my reason for doing what I'm about to do couldn't be further from those things. He's saying, I'm going to help you, but I'm not doing it for your advantage. Rather, I'm doing what I'm about to do in order to make my divinity known and to stoke belief in me into the hearts of those who would see and hear. Finally, finally then, Jesus adds, my hour has not yet come to the end of his response to Mary. I imagine at that time, this turn of phrase would have been confusing to Mary, and it will be confusing later to the many others that he will say this to. He'll say it again and again, as we'll see throughout our series. But with the start of his public ministry now at hand, it's as if this countdown clock has started leading up to the events of the cross. And between this time, the start of his ministry, and the cross, there's this new tension that's now at work. In the revealing of Jesus' glory and divinity, little by little, until it's fully revealed through his death and through his resurrection. And so until then, Jesus is pacing himself, as it were, so as to keep in perfect step with his father's timing, removing the covering that had shrouded his divinity only to whom he will and only at the timing he wills. Picking up again then in verse 5, we have Mary's response to Jesus' rebuke. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. What an interesting response, right? First, she's totally ignored the rebuke that she's just received from her son. She doesn't say a thing about it. And second, her response is pretty presumptive, isn't it? Now, this is speculation, but I think she answered as she did because she knew what his rebuke meant. Maybe not fully, but enough. I think she understood that while she could no longer presume upon her motherly prerogatives, he was nonetheless about to do something of divine significance. And so this time, as a believer and a disciple, instead of as his mother, she responds again, but this time in faith and trust, telling the servants to do whatever Jesus says. Picking up in verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. So Jesus here, playing off his mother's instruction to the other servants, makes his request. He tells them, fill up these six stone purification jars. And I'm no mathematician, but doing that simple math, I think that means that it's somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons of water that are being filled into these jars. And what we know about these jars is that they were a common staple in Jewish custom. If, you wanna, if you're a note taker, you can mark down Mark 7 uh, verses 1 through 4 and look at that later where we see an example of this where stone jars like this uh, were used for the washing of hands and cups and pots and even furniture in order to purify them before meals and other ceremonies. So that's the kind of jars that Jesus is asking these servants to fill up. But don't you wonder what they must have been thinking as they filled them up? 
I wonder if they had already been convinced by Mary that Jesus was perhaps more than just her oldest son. Maybe they'd already heard what people were beginning to say about Jesus, which we walked through in chapter 1 together. Or maybe the servants thought they were both a little bit nuts. We're, we're not really sure. But in any case, the servants did precisely what Jesus had asked them to do. They filled up the jars completely, even up to the brim, John tells us. Let's see what happens next. Picking up in verse 8 now. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Now the master of the feast, this is just like the head servant. He would have been the one that was responsible for the other servants, for the overall care and comfort of the guests. Let's keep going in verse 9. And when the master of the feast tasted, the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. So here, the head servant, who knew every bit as much as Mary and the other servants that the wine was gone, is now given a taste of the water now become wine, and he's shocked. He's shocked. And although the servants who had filled the jars knew the miracle that Jesus had just done, the head servant had no idea where the new wine had come from. And it's the bridegroom that would have been ultimately responsible for supplying food and drink for these days and days of wedding feasts. And so the head servant, the master of the feast, he just assumes, well, the bridegroom must have had some secret stash of really good wine that was hidden away for just such an occasion. So he approaches him now in verse 10. And he said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So here then, the head servant is congratulating the bridegroom for his apparent masterwork in party planning, right? He's assuming the bridegroom had all along planned this pleasant surprise of saving the good wine till last against the ordinary custom. But what John doesn't tell us here is what's happening amongst all those who just witnessed Jesus having just turned 180 gallons of water into aged wine with a simple act of his will. And so we're left to wonder a bit. We're left to our own to imagine this scene. I imagine that uh, the party would have kept going on. The wedding guests are surely happy. The bridegroom feels freshly affirmed in his now evident party planning skills. The master of the feast has breathed a sigh of relief. And meanwhile, Mary and the other servants and the disciples that came along with Jesus and perhaps even some of the guests who may have been near enough to see and hear must have all just been standing there in utter awe of what just happened, right? Don't you imagine Nathaniel was thinking back to what Jesus had said to him just three days earlier when he had spoke to him of the greater signs that he would soon see. So as the scene ends, Our witnesses are grappling to make sense of this thing that they've just seen, this sign. And that's where we pick things up in verse 11. John's summarizing the whole account, saying this. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. His disciples believed in him. The Apostle John tells us here that what we've just witnessed together is a sign. Jesus' first sign. What do signs do? Signs point us towards a destination. Signs reflect a truth. Signs make someone or something known. And here at Cana in Galilee, what this sign of Jesus is making known is Jesus' glory, it says. His doxa. And glory is this interesting kind of hard-to-grasp word. But with it, John means to say that in this sign, the water now become wine, to use the language of verse 9. In this sign, we're offered a glimpse into Jesus' true nature, His divinity now revealed. 
For as one scholar eloquently put it, Jesus' doxa is the sum of his divine attributes shining forth to the eyes and the hearts of men. Jesus' doxa is the sum of his divine attributes shining forth to the eyes and the hearts of men. And what is the result of Jesus' glory being put on display here, according to verse 11? Yeah. His disciples believed in him, John tells us. Now, I'm speculating a bit here as well, but I assume that some of the servants who just witnessed this miraculous sign have, for the first time, believed in Jesus and become his disciples on this day as well. But for sure who John has in view here in verse 11 is those disciples who had just days earlier already believed in Jesus for the first time. And John tells us here that the result of their witnessing this sign work of Jesus was progress in faith, progress in their believing, just as all God's people are called to. And then, as John ends the story of Jesus' first sign in verse 11, it's verse 12 then that tees up the second half of chapter 2, which we won't get to until next week. John there saying, And after this he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So that's the story of Jesus' first sign. But there are lessons to learn and for us to apply here as well. I had shared at the uh, beginning that our big idea for today's sermon is that Jesus' works always point his people toward belief, obedience, and to eternity with him. So do we find that big idea in John's telling of the story of Jesus' first sign? Well, let's start with the first one. Let's start with the first part there. Uh, Let's start with the claim that Jesus' works always point his people toward belief. Now, I shared a bit of my testimony with you at the beginning, and in it you heard me talk about how 22 years ago I first believed in Jesus as Christ and Savior and God through the truth that I had heard about Jesus that I had learned in John's gospel. And then here in verse 11 in chapter 2, we saw a biblical example of Jesus' words and works accomplishing the same thing in the life of his disciples and probably some of the other witnesses that were there for this as well. And in both cases, people are being stirred up to belief and faith in Jesus as a result of what they've seen and heard concerning him. And what a great evidence of God's grace this is to see how how clearly this fits in line with John's own stated purpose in writing, which we've talked about several times already, but again is that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in him. But what about you, Sound City? What about you, especially for those of you in here who wouldn't say that you're Christians? Well, let me submit to you that every testimony of belief in Jesus, every sign and work of his that you read about, including those we've that we've become witnesses of today. They're a means of grace to you. They're a gift to you to create the space and opportunity that you'd need in order to respond to Jesus in belief and in faith. What you've witnessed and heard today are claims about Jesus that demand a response. And so I'm just going to ask you, and you don't have to answer out loud or anything, but I'm just going to ask you, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that he's God and that he will take your sins away if you'll just exchange your life for a new life in him? You know, as I was preparing this week, it's interesting that uh, I realized that Jesus' signs also exist to reveal another purpose. And that's the establishment of guilt among those who don't believe. Let's move forward a little bit to John 15, verse 24, where John records Jesus speaking of all these signs that he's done, many more than what we've discovered here today at this point. 
And he says this, If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, these signs, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. A verse even nearer to where we're at today, just in John 3, I'm making it even clearer. Jesus saying this about himself. He says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Sounds City, God's desire is not that we would be scared into believing in Jesus. But it is his desire for you to know that not believing in Jesus is a matter of establishing your guilt and condemnation before a holy God. I know that's not cheery. It's not even easy for me to say. But that's the truth that we're each faced with as we consider how we'll respond to the signs of God's glory shown in Jesus, this Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world for all those who believe in him. Sound City, Jesus' works always point his people toward belief, but Jesus' works also always point his people towards obedience. Obedience. It's a word that in our culture almost feels like we're saying a bad word when we're saying it, doesn't it? It's a word that fights against the spirit of our age and our desire to liberate our will and our feelings from any outside influence that's contrary to them. And so our culture ties up the idea of obedience to this idea of legalism in an attempt to dismiss it altogether. But the scriptures tell a very different story, assuring us that obedience is the godly fruit that naturally and supernaturally overflows from genuine belief. Jesus himself drawing this same connection when he says in Luke 6, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? At odds with the culture, the Bible speaks of obedience to God as our truest hope of joy and peace and contentment in this life. And in that... We're reminded of the truth that he who made us in eternity past just might, just might have a better idea of what's best for us than we would. And we see glimpses of this godly obedience here in the story of Jesus' first sign. In chapter 2, verse 5, Jesus' mother, after having approached him first with her own agenda and concerns, now turns to him as a believer and a disciple. And as she does, what does she then tell the servants to do? She says, do whatever he tells you. And in the Greek, this reply is even more forceful. The nuance there is, do at once whatever he tells you and without question. So Mary here is ascribing to Jesus full authority. She submits her concerns to his manner of resolving the matter instead of seeking to have her will be done according to her motives. She trusts him. She commits the matter to him fully. In short, she offers her obedience to him. And then how do the servants respond? As we've mentioned before, we don't know exactly what the servants were thinking about Jesus at this point. Yet we do know that their response is one of full obedience to him. Like, to the letter, isn't it? Jesus tells them to fill up the jars with 100 plus gallons of water to solve the wine shortage. And verse 7 says, they filled the jars to the brim. Like to the very top. Then in verse 8, Jesus gives them another command, this time telling them, draw some of the new wine out of the jars and take it to the head servant. And do they hesitate? No. Apparently they'd chosen to continue to obey Jesus just as Jesus' mother had done a few verses ago. And this is the point. That as we 
come to know the glory and divinity of Jesus, our relationship with him rightly changes. As we come to know, as people come to know, the glory and divinity of Jesus, their relationship with him rightly changes. And we, just as Mary did, rightly then submit our will to his and our obedience to him. Because true belief in Jesus always overflows into action and always overflows into obedience to Jesus. And when we remember that as our designer, only he truly knows what's best for us, we realize what a gift God's call for our obedience to him really is. Amen? Charles Spurgeon's words are helpful for us on all this. He says, Beloved, it is not easy to be familiar with Christ as I trust we are, and yet always to maintain humble deference to his sacred will. We must keep our proper place, however near we become to our Lord. Then he goes on to comment uh, on the response of the wedding servants to Jesus, saying this, They obeyed Christ to the letter. If Christ says to you, fill the water pots with water, fill them up to the brim. Never cut down his commandments. Carry them out as far as the largest interpretation can go. When you are bidden to believe in him, believe in him up to the brim. When you are told to love him, love him up to the brim. When you are commanded to serve him, serve him up to the brim. Sound City, in your relationship with Jesus, does your own will always keep its proper place as secondary to his? Sound City, as you learn his commandments, do you carry them out as far as the largest interpretation can go? Or do you do something other than that? As you live out your faith in Jesus, do you believe and love and serve him all the way up to the brim? The glory of God, church, showcased for us through the signs of Jesus, compel us to fullness of belief, to fullness of obedience to Jesus. And this is for our transformation and our good and our joy. Do you believe that? Yeah. Sound City, Jesus' works always point his people toward belief, toward obedience, and also toward eternity with him. Now, in John's gospel, the signs and words and works of Jesus are often a prolepsis or a flashing forward of things to come. We see Jesus responding to questions he wasn't asked because he means to reframe the question and point us on towards eternity. We see Jesus describe an event or an object in a way that seems alien to the context in order to refocus our attention on a greater future reality. This kind of thing happens all the time in the book of John. And for those who took part in these stories recorded by the apostle, this would have surely been really confusing to them, right? But now centuries later, we're the beneficiaries of Jesus' future-focused language. It's as if Jesus was hiding these special messages in plain sight for future disciples like us who would have the benefit of historical perspective so that our faith might be strengthened while we wait patiently for the days of the eternal kingdom to come. And once we tune into this, we begin to see it for the great encouragement that it was meant to be to God's people. Here in John 2, uh, the backdrop of Jesus' first sign is a wedding feast. And in Matthew 22, Jesus compares the eternal kingdom of God to that very thing. And in this, pointing us forward towards our future feasting in eternity with him. The water jars used for Jewish purification rites that Jesus uses to make the water into wine 
points us forward to the reality that God is bringing new life from the old Jewish systems of purification. Jesus himself purifying a new people for his own possession for all eternity. The sheer quantity of the wine Jesus makes here in John 2 points us forward as well, encouraging us in difficult times with the assurance of the great generosity and provision that is in store for us in eternity. And the wedding feast in John 2, the best wine is saved for last, pointing us forward and reminding us of what our Lord has prepared and kept in waiting for us in eternity, which is a scene from the eternal kingdom that the prophet Isaiah caught a glimpse of, still available to us today from Isaiah 25, which says this, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Sound City, Jesus' works always point his people toward belief, towards obedience, and towards eternity with him. And may we at Sound City always be a people found faithful, ever growing in our belief in Jesus, ever making progress in our obedience to Jesus, ever anticipating the sure hope we have of eternity with him, and ever joyful in our sharing of his great works with all those who have yet to see the signs. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for Jesus. And we thank you that you have given us access to him and his works through the trustworthy and transformative words of your servant John. Change us with what you've taught us today, Jesus, and use us, we pray, to share with others the good news that you are the Christ and that new and eternal life is available only in you. And we pray all of this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, as we reflect on what we've learned and heard, let's turn now to a time of worship and response. And we'll respond in several ways this morning, through giving, through the receiving of the Lord's Supper together, through singing, and then we'll also sprinkle in some application questions and prayer points for you along the way as well. But we'll start with our response through giving. So if our financial stewards would go ahead and come, we'll start our response that way. Now, for any of you who are guests today, we want to make sure that you know that you're under absolutely no obligation to give. But for the rest of us who will be giving, we want to remember that God's desire is that we would always give as worship, as Dale and Alejandro talked about earlier, that we'd always give joyfully. We'll often look to 2 Corinthians 9, 7 to remind us of this truth, which says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So as you give, please do so with that principle in mind. And if you've got questions about how to give, uh, there's information on the screen behind me. Uh, There's also information at the bottom of your weekly beneath all the news items. There's some information there. You can also talk to the folks out at the Connect Us after the service if you've got any questions that those resources don't answer for you. And after the giving baskets are passed, you're also going to see baskets coming around with communion elements as well. And so while all that's happening, let me go ahead and read a a few discussion questions for us and prayer points for us to tee us up for the week. These are printed in your weekly as well, so you don't need to try and write them down if you're note takers. Number one, 
what specifically strikes you the most about Jesus' first sign? For Jesus' first disciples, it encouraged deeper belief and faith in him. How does it encourage your faith today and why? Number two, what does the interaction between Jesus and Mary and the servants teach you about what a right response to Jesus should look like for his disciples, which of course includes us? Number three, how does the foreshadowing of eternity seen in Jesus' first sign specifically encourage you in this life as we await his return? And then here's a few prayer points for us as well to get us started this week. We can be praying that we would all grow in our faith day by day as we reflect on the great signs and works of Jesus. And we can be praying that God would use us to help others see the signs of Jesus, come to faith in him, and receive new life in him. Now we're also going to respond this morning through the receiving of the Lord's Supper, which the Bible speaks of as a memorial meal to us. His body is being uh, broken for us. That's a, the bread is a symbol of that. And the juice reminding us of his blood shed for us. And the Apostle Paul gives us instruction for taking the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, where he reminds us of the words of Jesus to his disciples. Paul saying this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Okay, it looks like most of you have the communion elements by now. So we're going to go ahead and move into a time of response in song. And instead of our usual prayer that we would do to lead into this, we're going to do something a little bit different. Um, But after all that, then feel free to go ahead and take the communion elements as you see fit. But what I want to do that's a little bit different today is instead of using a a prayer, a traditional prayer to transition us, I I want you to soak in the words, more words from Charles Spurgeon that he wrote down about Jesus' first sign. And so I'm going to ask you to do this if you're comfortable doing it. Go ahead and close your eyes. And I want to ask you to receive these words as prayer and as a call to worship as I read them for us, okay? So go ahead and close your eyes. The band's going to play underneath us. And... uh, just encourage you, soak in these encouraging words with me. Beloved, there is better wine to come. We are in our privileges superior to the patriarchs and kings and prophets. God has given us a brighter and a clearer day than they had. Theirs was but the twilight of the morning compared with the noonday which we enjoy. But think not that we are come to the best wine yet. There are more noble banquets still for God's church. The king of heaven is coming again upon this earth. Jesus Christ, who came once and broached his heart for us on Calvary, is coming back again to flood the earth with glory. He came once with a sin offering in his hand. Behold, he comes no more with this, but with the cup of salvation and of thanksgiving. Ye cannot tell what wine, sparkling and red, that shall be, which shall come from the vintage of the hills of glory. And let us rejoice and cheer, Christian, that this good wine is kept in wait even unto that time. Amen.